Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States, and I've recently started a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. Yeah, good day. I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I also have type 2 diabetes. We're going to share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis, and hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. We're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind that, uh, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly. We're both foodies. Yes, we, we love are. to eat and we love to cook. We're also going to share some of the great food that we can eat on this diet. And every episode, we both share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So let's start podcast number seven, The Sweetener Show. So Richard, do you have any corrections or apologies from last week? I have one, but you go first. Okay. Well, I, I do have one. It's not so much a correction, um, but I mentioned that after six months of keto, I ended up with massive muscles. Of course, I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger. What I meant was, <laughs> I meant, <laughs> I meant, ma and I, I got teased about this mercilessly. Yeah, I'm sure. What I, what I meant, of course, is uh, massive in relation to the muscles I thought that I didn't have uh, before I started keto. It's, it's not like keto grows muscles, but it does preserve the ones you have. Okay, and my correction is that I mentioned last week that sugars like glucose and fructose trigger an insulin response, but really only glucose does. Yeah. Glucose raises insulin, um, but, you know, table sugar is half glucose and half fructose, right? Yes, it is. It is. But fructose has another problem that's a sort of a one-two punch that it goes right to fat. It gets converted directly to fat. And does not get metabolized if your if your insulin level is high. So the glucose raises your insulin, and the fructose in table sugar just goes right to your belly. Pretty much, yeah. So we'll we'll talk about that because uh, fructose is one of the sweeteners that we're going to talk about today. Okay, let's get into it. First of all, we always like to say in the show just what is ketogenic and and how does it differ from other carb-restricted diets. Yeah, so I was asked, actually asked this question today. What is the difference between keto and LCHF and low-carb and paleo? All different shades of the same thing. They're all carb-restricted diets. Um, the Atkins diet is probably the most popular or was the first big popular low-carb diet. Yeah, it is. And while the induction phase is essentially the ketogenic diet with more protein, um, the uh, the regular Atkins diet slowly introduces some carbohydrates and typically recommends you eat more protein than the ketogenic diet. The paleo diet is also a carbohydrate-restricted diet, but they tend to focus on foods that were only available to Paleolithic man. And some of those foods that were available to Paleolithic man actually had some sugars in them, uh, fruits and berries and like dates, for example, and you'll find a lot of that in paleo cooking, people using dates for sweetener. Yeah, and I don't know if the paleo people eat fruits year-round, but certainly if you were truly paleo, uh, you know, you lived back then, you would only have fruits at the end of the summer. Yeah. So, you know, 
there, there is that as well. Um, the low carb, high fat diet is essentially what we do. Yes, pretty much. Except that we focus on only eating enough protein to maintain muscle mass. And that turns out to be kind of a trick uh, to, to get right and something that you'll have to experiment with. Um, you know, if you're exercising, for example, or fasting, those ratios change. But essentially, just enough protein to be healthy because you don't want to stress your kidneys. And uh, the rest from fat. And of course, really low carbohydrate, you know, incidental carbs come, that come from nutritional things like green leafy vegetables and. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Occasional nuts. Yeah, so pretty much we're getting all of our energy from fat and we're using right. what protein we eat is for building our bodies and the carbs are just incidental because a lot of good things have some carbs in them. So That's right. What we want to avoid is processed carbs, sugary fruits, sugary anything. Um, yeah. Richard, how did you do this week? So I had a bit of a lapse this week. Uh, on Thursday, my uh, my niece turned eighteen, and we went out to a Nepalese restaurant for dinner. Okay, and because because the whole evening was about her, I didn't want to sort of uh, I didn't want to have to focus on my orthorexic diet, and yeah. so I just I just ate food, you know. Yeah, I sidestepped the rice and the paratha and the naan, mm. um, naan, which is all obviously carbohydrate food. Right. Um, but I had things like dal and a lot of the sauces, and it turns out that that well, yeah, I'll tell you what happened. The next day I put on three kilograms, so we all know ah. what happened, right? <laughs> and I, t I tell you, I didn't eat three kilograms worth of food. So, right, uh, yeah. But I drank a lot of water, and uh, when I got home, I drank a, 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 several liters of water, and of course, that's all uh, water weight being put on. Right. So the next day I did a 90-minute bike ride. Nice. And that pretty much burned through all of my glycogen. And the funny thing was the whole time I was doing it, I was busting for a pee. And that, <laughs> of course, is uh, that of course is the water making its way out. Yeah, and that's what happens. But did you find, as I did last week, that when you lapsed, you really didn't have carb cravings? Yeah, I didn't have much carb cravings at all. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that in the old days when I was a carb a fueler, I was fueling on carbs. Um, my, I would get, get into reactive hyperglycemia. That is, my, I'd, I'd eat some carbs, my insulin would kick in, and then it mm. would take me too low, and it would take my blood glucose below where it wants to be, and then I would feel like eating a candy bar stat. Yeah, you know? right. And so I don't get that because I'm quite comfortable um, getting energy from my body fat. Right, you're fat adapted. That's right. So, uh, so I find that I don't get, I don't get those carb cravings much. The, really, the only thing is, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a setback. Um, but you know, all of that uh, water weight, all of that glucose that's being stored, some of it gets stored in your liver, but most of it goes straight to your muscles. So it's something you yeah. really just want to, you know, spend ninety minutes doing something energetic, and you'll you'll pretty much burn through that. Yeah, and that's something that I probably should have done this week because this week I I I lost a pound. You know. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But uh, I went up and down a little bit and, you know, ended up a pound down. But I know that I would have gone through that a lot faster if I had done any exercise whatsoever, but I didn't. And I've been doing intermittent fasting, which is just eating one meal a day. You know, sometimes it stretches over five or six hours, but most of the time it's within a three or four hour window. Yeah. So you're minimizing the amount of insulin that you have to deal with for that day. Yeah, exactly. And that has worked out really, really well. I generally don't get hungry until dinner time. And that would never have been the case before 
you know, being fat adapted is just wonderful in that you can you have more control over your over your uh, eating and your yeah. metabolism. It's remarkable, yeah. Yeah. So next week, I'm going to be out in San Francisco cool. at a Microsoft conference. Nice. And uh, I'm going to really enjoy only eating one meal a day, which is generally going to be dinner, of course, um, yeah. because, you know, you're at a conference during the day, you know, breakfast, lunch, it's all garbage. And you'll see pretty much everybody when they come out, they, they do a 60, 50 or 60 minute session. When they come out, everybody goes straight to the, to the drinks trolleys to pick up a, a sugary soda and a, yeah. and a little uh, pastry or something. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's remarkable. Once you get off that particular uh, conveyor belt, it's remarkable how much control you have over, over your eating. Yep, exactly. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, may or may not lose any weight next week, but I certainly won't gain any. Yeah, no, that's excellent. All right, Richard, it's time for mail. We're justified and we don't need no Mail. 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 So what have we got, Carl? Well, we actually had a great question slash suggestion posted on our website by Ben Peltier, who says, Hello, dudes. I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on the shift that happens in ketosis around the three-week mark when the majority of the cells in the body stop using ketones and switch to using free fatty acids for fuel. This leaves only the brain and a few other cell groups using ketones for fuel. It seems this shift would be of significant import. And we said that was a great question. And go ahead and send us any research that you have found, right? So my understanding is that when we burn fat, we get a little energy converting fatty acids into a fuel called acetyl-CoA, which mm. is then fed into a series of reactions called the Krebs cycle. And that generates a lot of energy. Right. Uh, when we burn glucose or ketones, we also turn them first into acetyl-CoA. So it's like a common fuel for this, for this engine, the Krebs cycle engine. Um, when the Krebs cycle can't keep up with the supply of acetyl-CoA coming from fatty acids, your mitochondria switches to make ketones instead, which mm. it knows it can later convert into acetyl-CoA. So ketones are kind of like a storage form of, of fat fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a short-term storage form. And uh, these ketones have more potential chemical energy than fatty acids or glucose. So it's kind of like a high-octane form of this fuel. Right. So um, the only reason that the liver is different is that it makes glucose, and one of the necessary chemicals that it, it needs to do that is something called oxaloacetate, which is one of the intermediary steps in the Krebs cycle. So when your liver makes glucose, it steals that oxaloacetate from the mitochondria, and that stops the Krebs cycle. So uh, with a stopped Krebs cycle, the mitochondria turns fatty acids into ketones instead because it can't stuff them into the Krebs cycle because it's stopped. Got it. So in this state, the liver is making both ketones and glucose, which is perfect. That's exactly what we want when we don't have um, uh, a source of dietary glucose coming in. Yeah. So most of the liver's energy is coming from that first stage of beta oxidation of fatty acids into ketones. And as okay. I understand it, all cells with mitochondria can take ketones and easily turn them into acetyl-CoA. And because ketones are water-soluble, they move easily throughout the body. When you first go keto, you're likely adapted for glucose fueling. Over two to six weeks, you slowly become better at moving fatty acids into the cell right. and into the mitochondria. And you also become better at making enzymes for oxidizing them. So you're just becoming a more efficient fat-burning engine. Yeah. At that point of keto adaption, your ability to burn uh, free fatty acids outcompetes your ability to burn ketones in most of your cells. So it's okay. not so much that your cells lose the ability to burn ketones after three weeks. 
the ketones are queued up to get in, turned into acetyl-CoA with many, many more fatty acids all queuing for the same thing. So they get outcompeted. And so if I could posit the possibility or the theory then that this slowdown that we mentioned before, this PISS, the post-induction stall syndrome, is probably related to what's going on here that uh, Ben talks about. It could be. I'm not quite sure about exactly how that uh, relates to weight loss and why you stall at that particular point. Yeah. But there's definitely a change happening at that point. And he is right that we have all experienced this pause, right? Yeah. We uh, when when you get on a low carb, high fat diet after it's after about three weeks, you know, everything just sort of stops. And in my case. And in yours, too, we just sort of coasted along for a while, and then uh, something happened, and it started to drop. In my case, I did a fast, a 60-hour fast, and that really, really worked for me. Yeah. That, and basically, you're just kicking it into gear. Uh, in my case, I went, my weight went up a little bit, uh, but I was determined to get through this. And I had this specter of the drug that the doctor wanted to put me on that I really didn't want to go on, so I was really committed to uh, making this diet work. Yeah. And it, as it turned out, that little bit of commitment leaning into the whole process uh, was very good. And I think a lot of people sort of at that three-week period, they give up. they maybe put on a little weight and they give up, yeah. And I think yeah. that's that's the critical thing is you need to lean into the process at that point. Yeah, very, very true. And you'll also find that you can uh, do a fast after three weeks because you're more fat adapted. For me, it took, I think it took about six weeks to become really comfortable with everything. And I think that was the point where I was the most fat adapted. Mm -hmm. I don't think I got much better at that point. Certainly by three weeks, I was better than week one. Week three was definitely better than week one. Yeah. All right. Now we um, also got a comment which was left on another show. Uh, this is a, a software podcast that I do called .NET Rocks. And uh, Richard Campbell, the other Richard, All right. he does these shows with me called... Uh, uh, geeking out with Carl and Richard, and we call them the geek out shows. And we talked about genetically modified uh, food, you know, GMO. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And right at the beginning of the show, I uh, cited this, our show, Two Keto Dudes. And, and I talked about the ketogenic diet just a little bit. And then um, a loving listener, loving listener concerned, that's the name he chose as an alias, he wrote the following As a doctor, your talk on ketogenic talk really alarmed me. There is a reason ketogenic intervention is limited, actually rarely to never used. And I guess he's talking about in the medical profession. We cannot make this into a medical discussion, but at least tell your audience to test themselves for apolipoprotein expression before recommending ketogenic diets. A ketogenic diet is a surefire way to reduce the markers you mentioned, but it can destroy your health in the long run. Obviously, he's very alarmed about that. Yes, and I was very alarmed in reading it, and so I reached out to a couple of uh, specialists in the field that I know of, um, and uh, and a couple of doctors as well, that uh, to see if there was anything in their training that might coincide with this. So what I found is that um, there is a protein on the surface of lipoproteins uh, called APO, APO, APO lipoprotein, mm -hmm. and it's used as the mechanism for binding with uh, organs in the body to pass cholesterol and uh, other lipids from the, inside the lipoprotein into the organ. So okay. when you eat some uh, fatty food, uh, when it goes, it gets into your uh, into your intestines. 
uh, it passes the gut wall and it goes into these lipoproteins called chylomicrons and they ferry it off to the liver uh, and around your body. And then your liver makes uh, lipoproteins called uh, very low-density lipoproteins, VLDLs, and when it has too many lipids, it puts them into these VLDLs and it cuts them around the body to be uh, taken up by by cells that are burning them or by fat cells. So, and, uh, and we don't want to confuse people. The VLDL, I know it sounds like LDL cholesterol, but this isn't quite the same thing, is it? No. It's the first uh, lipoprotein particle that, that the liver makes, and then that uh, overuse over time becomes intermediate uh, IDL, uh, and then that over time becomes LDL, um, and then that gets disposed of. Got it. Hopefully gets disposed of. And we'll do a whole podcast on lipoproteins and cholesterol um, down the road because there's a lot to talk about there. So what I found was that uh, some people have a genotype where they have one or two alleles on their DNA for making this APOE. And this is a particular, there are, there are four or five different kinds of APO for different lipoproteins, but this particular one is for, it's used in the brain, it's used to get cholesterol into the brain, it's used to uh, get cholesterol into the liver. And it poses a risk for these people, the ketogenic diet? Well, no, it doesn't. It, what it does is it, for some people, when they eat a high-fat diet, they produce a lot of LDL. Okay. And people, doctors have traditionally thought of LDL as being the quote-unquote bad cholesterol. Correct. But of course, one of the things that the ketogenic diet does is it reduces your triglycerides. Which is really a marker of bad cholesterol, isn't it? That's right. And if your triglycerides are under 100 uh, or under 1 millimole, uh, under 100 milligrams per deciliter or under 1 millimole per liter, then your LDL cholesterol is, is generally large and fluffy. So this is a more benign form. And we've known about this since 1990. Right. It's the small, really high density... Uh, small particles that cause the uh, placking in the arteries, which we were talking about. And one of the markers for that is high-level triglycerides because it basically works these things so hard and they can't mm. get to be scavenged. And so they become hard and grizzled and, and uh, grumpy little things. And, so, and those end up in the uh, plaques in the wall of your arteries. And suffice it to say, we're going to have another show on cholesterol to go over all of this stuff, as you mentioned before. Just, it's really interesting that when I had blood work done the last time and my cholesterol was high and they just gave me an LDL versus HDL, you know, ratio and those numbers. And I asked the doc, I said, so is there any subfractions of LDL? They are, you know, light and fluffy LDL versus small dense LDL, because we know that there are differences now. And the doc said, nope. Nope, it's all just one number. So they're not quite up on the latest research in terms of uh, subfractions of LDL. No, and and you can get a lipoprofile test that will tell you how large your LDL is. But one easy proxy for it is how much triglycerides have you got. Right. If you've got more than 100 uh, uh, milligrams per deciliter of triglycerides, you are keeping your uh, LDLs out late and they're getting small and oxidized and uh, glycated and all of the... Th the longer that these LDLs are working, the more likely they are to become small and dense. Now, there's three different kinds of alleles, APOE, uh, type 2, type 3, and type 4. And, you, and because you get one from your mother and one from your father, you can have 2-2, two, 2-3, two, two, three, 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 four, or 4-4. Four, four. And it's 4-4s four, that 
make a lot of LDL. That's one of the characteristics. We, we can talk about this a lot more later on. But So basically, we're not saying you should get a genetic test. What we're saying is you should look at your triglyceride levels and see if they come down. And while we're not doctors and we can't say, just go ahead and try the ketogenic diet first, um, I, I, I have to believe that uh, doing a ketogenic diet for a few weeks isn't going to raise your triglycerides, but you should watch the triglycerides and see if that they're coming down. If they're not coming down, then you may have a serious problem. Yes. I, my advice is really talk to your general practitioner or your primary right. care physician and get them on board and explain to them what you're doing and explain why you're doing it. And uh, maybe when you start this whole process, get a, a preparatory uh, blood work done. So get your, your glucose right. levels done, HbA1c, fasting glucose, uh, maybe your insulin levels, fasting insulin if you can, mm-hmm. uh, and also get your uh, triglycerides and HDL. Yep. LDL is not too much of a worry, but it's nice to be able to see which direction it goes. But sure. be aware that uh, some people on a, a ketogenic diet, their LDLs go up and some their LDLs go down and some of their LDLs stay flat. So we should talk about that a lot in another episode because we've got to, we're here to talk about sweeteners, aren't we? Right. We're here to talk about sweeteners. So sweeteners, where do we start? I know I know people who are severely addicted to Diet Pepsi, Diet Coke, and aspartame or aspartame-based uh, sodas, and I never really got into it all that much, thank God, and could completely take or leave diet sodas. But uh, like I said, I know a lot of people. Are there different types of artificial sweeteners? Can you categorize them in different types? Yes, you can. You you can think of uh, artificial sweeteners as non-caloric or non-nutritive sweeteners, but it, in a lot of cases, these are chemicals that have no relationship at all to to a food. In in one case, uh, I think the first one was saccharin. It was invented in the 1800s by uh, a gentleman who's making dyes, I believe, from petrochemicals. And so, you know, he just happened to lick one of the chemicals that he'd just created. I don't know why you lick a chemical that you just created, but he <laughs> yeah, did. I know. What was he thinking? <laughs> and he found out I it was insanely just sweet. Poison. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, uh, um, you know, so basically, and he found out it was extremely sweet. And so a lot of these things are like somewhere up to 7,000 times sweeter than sucrose, table mm. sugar. So, you know, yeah. these are chemicals that, that really trick the taste receptors in the tongue. And they call these non-nutritive sweeteners, right? Non-nutritive sweeteners. So basically, they, in theory, they go straight through you. Some of them, some sugar alcohols have interesting effects. We'll talk a little bit about what your, right. your the, the contents of your stomach or the contents of your gut will do with them. And the sugar alcohols we would call nutritive sweeteners versus the chemical yes, ones. Yes, that's right. Okay. So the non-nutritive sweeteners are things like, and you would have seen them in the, the packets of artificial sweeteners. You would right. see uh, the pink packet is saccharin. Saccharin. Uh, its trade name is sweet and low. Right. Uh, and you might see a blue packet, which is uh, the chemical in there is aspartame. Equal, NutraSweet, that kind of stuff. That's right. And um, and then sucralose is the yellow one, and that's actually the one that I, I tend to prefer myself. I, I use sucralose a lot for my in my food because... One of the things that it does is that it is extremely stable under heat, so you can use it for cooking and, and other things, right. which is very useful. Right. But we're both cooks, right? So we're probably used to cooking a lot with sugar, and there's a lot of physical properties separate from the flavor that 
uh, we're going to miss with without being able to use sugar in our foods. And so we'll talk a little bit about some of those. Um, it seems to me in doing research on these non-nutritive sweeteners that they all have strange side effects, which uh, and, and some of them have this weird trick that they play on your body that your yeah. taste buds get the signal that there's something sweet, but there's no calories. And that yes. other studies have shown that that in and of itself can cause interruptions in the normal uh, metabolic cycle of sugar. But uh, sucralose in particular has been shown to cause shrinking of the thymus gland uh, and also enlargement of the liver and kidneys and atrophy of lymph follicles and spleen and thymus. Some weird, some weird stuff. Right. There were some st statistical anomalies in those in those particular studies. They were in mice, so so I'm not. And I'm, my, I'm, as I'm, we all know, mice are not men. No, that's <laughs> or right. women. Well, at least at least not this man. One of the things about sucralose is that when you eat a gram of sucralose, you expel a gram of sucralose in your urine. So we're not aware of any me metabolic um, things that it does on the way through. It doesn't transform, but it certainly does affect. That's right. Okay, so there are actual sugars that you might see around the place that are used as artificial sweeteners. Okay. Um, for example, fructose. Right. It used to be that diabetics were given fructose because it doesn't require insulin to metabolize. Right. Uh, but I highly recommend um, uh, watching Robert Lustig's Fructose 2.0 video because he goes into exhaustive detail about the metabolism of fructose, and he has some of the world experts in fructose metabolism build for him the slideshows that he used in that presentation. So um, fr fructose is uh, metabolized directly in the liver. Uh, it's not metabolized anywhere else. It can't really be used like glucose everywhere in the body. It's just used in the liver. It's turned into fat and stored locally, and there's no off switch with fructose. So your body is not aware that it's getting calories, but it is getting calories. And so there's a lot of things wrong with uh, with fructose. It's not really a good artificial sweetener because it's it's essentially just another another simple sugar. One of the problems that that we have with sweeteners is that we respond to things that are sweet with a yes. very very visceral reaction. And this is the exact. This is why your friends who can't not have diet sodas are the way they are because they they they're, they're used to that sweet um, experience. Yeah. And it's interesting. The brain can actually notice that you're eating something sweet. And tell the pancreas produce some insulin, That's even right. though you're not producing any glucose. So what that actually does is that it produces the pancreas produces the insulin. There's no glucose ends up uh, going uh, into your bloodstream, and all of a sudden your uh, your in your blood glucose goes down because there's insulin but no glucose, and now you need to eat something more. And so right. so it's quite possible that somebody has a diet soda and then wants to have a donut with it. You know. So. Yeah, that's very true. And you see these people all the time, you know, who go through a McDonald's, Burger King, uh, fast food or whatever, and they get all this crap and then they get a big Diet Coke. Yeah. You know, it's kind yeah. of like, all right. What's <laughs> it's like giving him permission. You know, I've been really good. I've been really good on the soda, so I might just supersize my fries. <laughs> yeah. Um, sugar alcohols are interesting. And I, like, I, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I did an experiment with maltitol yeah. and it whacked me right out of ketosis, but it's very sweet and very sugar-like. Mm. Um, people love erythritol. That's another one. I find it to be almost um, too minty. I don't know. There's like a, okay. a, a, a minty aspect to it. And also the erythritol granules that I had didn't melt all that much. Ah. I tried making chocolate with it. 
didn't work. Yeah, no, the interesting thing about erythritol is that it has an exothermic reaction so that as it touches your tongue, it draws heat away from your tongue so it feels cold. And That's it. It's cold. Yeah, it's, that's what it is. It's cold. So it, that, that's why it feels like menthol, like a mint kind of uh, reaction. Yeah. Um, and so I've had a lot of success with a blend of erythritol and stevia. And stevia, of course, is a, a natural product. It comes from a leaf. It's been used in uh, South America for thousands of years and um, it has, made yeah. its way into the Western diet in, I would say, the 70s or so. And just uh, People do not like stevia so much because it has a bitter aftertaste. And there are ways that you can combine that with other things to get rid of the bitter aftertaste and use it in smaller amounts. But I yeah. found that the sweet leaf drops are, are pretty good and not very bitter. But Okay, go ahead, continue. So, so, so I actually have an interesting reaction with stevia. You were saying you have a, a reaction with erythritol. My mm. reaction with stevia, um, actually, let me first mention, I, I, I've mentioned before that I have a reaction with uh, coriander leaf. Yeah, that's right. It overwhelms my palate and makes an entire, if there's a little bit of coriander leaf, the entire meal tastes soapy. I have a similar problem with stevia. I used to have a stevia plant and I used to chew on a stevia leaf and a mint leaf together huh. um, instead of chewing on a, a, a sugar-free chewing gum. Uh, but I had, a, I had a really funny aftertaste with the stevia. And my hypothesis is I have a similar reaction to stevia as I do with coriander leaf. So stevia I find with erythritol, there's a commercial product called Truvia in America. Truvia, yeah. Yeah, and in Australia it's called Sun Crystals. And it's erythritol and stevia crystals, and I find they're very good. I can get a toffee out of those. I, I do toffee uh, macadamia nuts with that. So so I have a story about Truvia. I bought a big bag of that stuff, and I thought it was awesome. And I made essentially like a chocolate mousse with it. So I took whipped cream and uh, Hershey's dark cocoa and you know some Truvia and whipped it all up into this mousse. And it was delicious, and I gorged myself on that stuff, and it whacked me. Ketosis, oh. gone. Oh, dear. Oh, totally no. whacked me. So, me, personally, I am very sensitive to all of these things. All these sugar alcohols, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe even stevia. I don't know. But I, I just avoid all of them. I'm, yeah. and, and like we've been saying, on the ketogenic diet, after a while, you just forget about sweet, and yeah. you don't care. You just don't care. It's just not that important. Yeah, I've heard people say if you're craving sweet, a sweet taste, eat something with fat in it. Now yes. You, you, and the reason that your body wants a sweet taste is because it knows that sweet things are processed very quickly into energy. Yeah. Underlying, you really want some energy. You're fat adapted. Have a little bit of butter, have a little slice of butter or a little bit of coconut oil or something like that. Piece of like hard that. cheese. Yeah. Piece of hard cheese or some macadamia nuts and... Um, and and your body will be able to do what it needs to do with that to get you the energy that you want, and you'll you may find that your sweet cravings go away. That is probably the smartest thing you can take <laughs> away from this show today, kids. Okay, is that there you go. you're craving something sweet, eat some fat, and give it five minutes, and that craving will go away. Let's see how it goes. That's a yeah. great great thing to say, Richard. Only other thing I want to say is that um, Atkins bars, which people ah. love to eat are full yes. of maltitol. Yes. And uh, Russell Stover has a line of sugar-free chocolates and candies and things that you can get in your local drugstore or whatever, your grocery store. Those are also laden with maltitol. Uh, so I guess what we're saying here is there's a lot of different sweeteners. 
go look at the risks of these things, number one. And number two, test yourself. Yeah. Find out what works for you. And it's very easy to test yourself. You get up in the morning, you test your blood sugar. That's your fasting blood sugar. And then you eat a keto meal. And after the keto meal, have, uh, you know, something with maltitol in it and test yourself again. And if you really yeah. want to do it on day one, eat the keto meal without the maltitol, test your blood sugar after right. on day two. Get yourself a control. Yeah. Absolutely. On day two, add the maltitol at the end and see if you have a reaction to it. That's just the way to do it. So there is one sugar artificial sweetener that I didn't mention, which is xylitol. I had a xylitol when I was a kid with the little hammers and stuff. <laughs> yeah, percussion. So, yes, well, xylitol uh, is not a musical instrument. It's actually a crystal. Uh, it's a sugar alcohol, and it's actually made from hardwood bark or corn cobs. Uh, commercially in America, we make it from corn cobs, but traditionally uh, m most of the xylitol in the world uh, is either made from American corn cobs or Finnish uh, bark of hardwood trees. Mm. And uh, it's actually, uh, personally, I find it to be the closest to sugar in terms of its mechanical properties and its sweetness properties. But the only problem is it's highly poisonous to dogs. Well, of course uh, we it's poisonous to dogs. It's made from bark. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, so so we won't have it in the house. That's that's the bottom line for us there. It, it, so uh, you're just afraid if the dogs get into the garbage or something, and it's they get some xylitol and it. They, yeah. Right, okay. Yes. Well, I just bought some xylitol because this is one sweetener that I haven't tested on myself. So okay. I'm going. I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah. And I'll let you know next week how it goes. Awesome. So there are other sugar alcohols, and what? Why sugar alcohol anyway? Why is it called a sugar alcohol when it's really not alcohol in the in the alcohol that we know? Well, it, it has an OH uh, uh, molecule, uh, uh, moiety at the end of it, so as does ethanol, and so uh, so it, it is a sh it is mostly a sugar with a little alcohol tail on it. So uh, that's why. We so call anything it sugar that alcohols. ends in all, you can probably consider a sugar alcohol. That's right. Erythritol, xylitol, zorbitol. That's it. Uh, glycerol. What happens is that we lack the enzymes to turn that into glucose. But okay. we're not the only organisms involved in our gut. We actually have a large biome of organisms in our gut, and some of them may well be able to metabolize these things. And so as far as the human is concerned, these things are like fiber. They are carbohydrate. We can't metabolize them. They go straight through us. But our gut biome, the, the bacteria in the gut, some of them are able to uh, to metabolize them. Some of them will metabolize them into methane and uh, and uh, short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. Um, and uh, well, we know that they, they metabolize it into methane because we know that some some certain fibers will make us, give us the wind, you know? So, so it's my thought that, you know, most people will experiment with sweeteners during the first few weeks of, uh, of a low carb, high fat diet simply because they're looking for that. They're still looking for that sweet. And, um, after a fast, after you do IF intermittent fasting for a long time, you're just going to lose those cravings and this stuff gets, uh, more and more sort of distasteful to you. And I think that's good. I think that's the goal. Everybody should think of, you know, eliminating them altogether, and if if you can live your life without them, do so. 
That's what I think. Because anything that is made in a laboratory, I just don't think is good for you. I just can't imagine. Yeah, I'm a little bit less skeptical about uh, laboratory foods, but uh, I, 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 I worry that uh, that we tend to see something like a, that's a leaf and say, well, that's natural, so it must be good for you. But arsenic's also natural and good for you. Yeah. Uh, hemlock, yeah. And in fact, arsenic is 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 an essential uh, an essential mineral in extremely small amounts, and anything more than that's deadly. <laughs> so it's really crazy. Yeah. All right, I think it's time for recipes. 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 Um, what have you got for us, Carl? Uh, what I have is very simple. I love. Brussels sprouts. Oh, no. Now, when I was a kid, my mommy and daddy made me Brussels sprouts by steaming them. No salt, no fat, just steamed little cabbages. And I said, yuck. But that's what my perception of Brussels sprouts was. Then I went to a steakhouse and I said, "Eh, what the heck? Let's get some Brussels sprouts. And what they did at the steakhouse was cut them in half, a little olive oil, a little salt in the broiler, blasted in the broiler so that- Nice. So they got crispy. The leaves became brown and crispy mm. and oily, like potato chips. Oh, really? Oily, like really crispy and good. And I said, oh, I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so that's the simple recipe. Just cut them in half, some olive oil, some salt- Throw them in there. Now, my friend Richard Campbell, who I cited in the .NET Rocks Geek Out show, he likes to put chopped hazelnuts in there. Um, I've also seen bacon. Bacon. Yes, I've heard of bacon bits. And you can drizzle some mayonnaise over them as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know about mayonnaise. I like mayonnaise <laughs> and my tuna and my salads and stuff, but I don't know. Uh, you, you, whatever. It doesn't matter. If you like mayonnaise, go for it. Who am I going to judge, yeah. right? <laughs> but um, I, I recently had at a steakhouse shaved Brussels sprouts. Oh. So these are sort of chopped like coleslaw, okay, you know, yeah. or shaved in a mandolin maybe. Yeah. And then... Uh, cooked instead of olive oil, they use bacon fat and then chunks of mm. bacon or pork belly or something like oh, that. Yeah. And then put that stuff under a broiler. And I'm talking like 500, 600 degrees, like right Hot. under the broiler. Oh, yeah. And you only need them in there for like five minutes Yeah. and they'll turn brown. Now, another trick that we do at my house is after they've browned, I pull it out. I take some shredded Asiago or Parmesan, put that over that mm-hmm. and put it back in for another minute to melt that cheese. Let me tell you mm, nice. something. <laughs> that sounds awesome. You'll be a believer. Trust me. Yeah. And then it turns out any kind of vegetable that you can cook, you can blast under the broiler with some fat and some salt. So all you got to do is get some fat on it and the fat's going to yeah. protect it a little bit and then right? it's going to crisp it up. And oh, that sounds awesome. So you could do it with cabbage or with uh, wombuck or... Anything absolutely. Like yeah, absolutely. Cabbages are perfect for this because they're hardy and they can take the heat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and then you just, but you could do it with peppers, you could do it with mushrooms, you could do it with any nice. kind of veggie, you know, get a little salt, get a little fat and blast it. And the, the flavor of the vegetable comes right out and knocks you out. It's oh, great. I'm going to try, I'm going to try that this week. That's it. 
What do you got? Awesome. So I'm going to talk about low-carb chocolate. Today okay. we're actually recording this on Easter Sunday. So Yeah. Um, so, and in fact, I, I wrote a blog post on my blog easylowcarb.com uh, a year ago, uh, Easter, Easter 2015, and it's about making low-carb chocolate. And my blog post goes into way more detail than you would ever need, of course, <laughs> about the process <laughs> of making chocolate and Yep. But but the, the essence of chocolate is that you're getting the fat from the cacao and you're getting the uh, cocoa mass from the cacao and you're getting something sweet. And uh, and those three things together make chocolate. Now, most uh, chocolate manufacturers use sugar for the something sweet, and we obviously don't want to do that. We're quite right. happy to have fat. We're quite happy to have the cacao butter. I mean, that's that's the that's the that's the fat. Um, and uh, there's a few carbs in the cacao mass, the the, the cocoa. You, you you could add cocoa to uh, to another fat like um, uh, uh, like coconut oil if you wanted to. But the the best chocolate is made with cacao butter. Yeah. So uh, and I've got a. a, a, a it, more than enough detail of it on the on the blog post about where you get cacao butter and difference between Dutch and non Dutch cacao mass, but basically, the what you do is you combine the flavour, which is the cacao mass, you uh, or the cocoa. Uh, mm-hmm. You add the uh, the fat, which is cacao butter, or you could use coconut fat, for example, and then you use a sweetener. And, I, and the critical thing is that you don't want a sweetener that has any li- any water in it, because as soon as you add water to melted cacao butter, it seizes up. And you would have seen this if you've ever melted any chocolate and you accidentally spill some water in it, it'll seize all up. So, um, so what you're doing is. Uh, you're mixing these three together and you, you then you're developing crystals in it. You, you can just take that melted chocolate and put it into forms and you'll get perfectly fine chocolate. Uh, if you have it in the fridge for a couple of days, it'll get a white bloom on it and it'll be soft and chewy. It won't be hard and crisp. But if you really want to make the best chocolate, you want to temper your chocolate. And this is a process of setting the crystals in the chocolate so that it becomes – it. You end up with a snap when you when you break the chocolate. You end up with a snap, and it doesn't melt in your hand. It melts easily in your mouth, and so there's uh, six different kinds of crystals in chocolate. And what we're trying to do is we're trying, and each each melts at a different temperature. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to melt the chocolate and then slightly set it and then melt it a little bit more. And it's the temperatures that we do this that's going to make the ideal chocolate. And generally, the process is that you want to get it uh, over about 36 degrees, and that's going to melt the chocolate. So you've, you've mixed the three things together, and you've you, maybe you put it into, into a vacuum-sucked bag, and maybe you're using a sous vide to melt your chocolate, for example. And then you, um, you get it over 36 degrees, and that's going to melt the chocolate. And I get it up to about thirty between thirty six and thirty eight, and that's basically going to melt all of the all of the crystals and and allow them to recrystallize. And then what you want to do is you want to drop it to 27 degrees, and that's going to to crystallize the type four and type five crystals. And that is going; those are the ones that we want to have a fully tempered chocolate. Traditionally, what people do is that they use a marble to temper their chocolate, which is basically a large slab of marble um, that it's a large thermal mass, and it basically keeps the temperature. So you basically pour your melted chocolate over the top of that, and then swish it around with a palette knife until. It start, just starts to set, and then you re 
uh, melt it a little bit and then you basically take it back up to 32 degrees and then that's your melted chocolate that's perfectly tempered. You're a chocolate scientist, my friend. That is crazy. I know. It's, it is it is weird science, but when you get a perfectly tempered chocolate, it is awesome. We will use these. We'll basically take a, a macadamia nut. We might... Uh, Put it in some erythritol, in some melted erythritol to get a candied macadamia nut. Drop mm. it into a mold, drop some chocolate on top of that, leave it to set, and we'll end up with a perfect keto, non uh, low carb, almost no carb. The only carbs involved are in the the nut and in the in the cocoa. Yeah, and it's a little fat bomb. It's mostly fat. This is a really good thing to have uh, in your fridge for when the when the munchies hit. Right now, of course, you need to find the the sweetener that works for you. And mm-hmm. uh, as Carl said, maybe you don't want it. Maybe you want to try and get sweet foods out of your out of your life. But some days, like Easter Sunday, um, it's nice to have a few uh, a few chocolates around. So um, right, that's my recipe today. Yeah, rock on. And you should go to my blog to find out all of the details about that. And that's easylowcarb.com, easy, L-O-C-A-R-B.com. That's it, yeah. Richard, that's a show. Awesome. Uh, Dare I say it was pretty sweet. (laughs) I'll see you next week, Carl. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on Two Keto Dudes. (laughs) 